forward to today's continuing series tonight. And we continue with this series, lesson number six, on questions from God. Joshua was a mighty man of God, a servant to Moses, and a leader in Israel. His initial appearance in the biblical record is as the military captain of the nation under the authority of Moses, Exodus 17, 9. In Exodus 24, 13, he is described as the minister of Moses. When Moses ascended upon Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, Joshua accompanied him part of the way and then waited for his return, Exodus 32, 15 to 17. Following the incident with the golden calf, Moses erected the tabernacle a distance from the camp of Israel, and Joshua served as its sentinel, Exodus 33:11. When Moses had reached the point of exhaustion with the ceaseless, defiant spirit of Israel, God authorized him to select 70 elders who could assist him in becoming the burdens of leadership. God met them at the tabernacle, and God granted them the temporary gift of prophecy as a sign of confirmation to Israel of their authoritative position in the nation under Moses. Two of these men, Eldad and Medad, remained and prophesied in the camp. Concerned for Moses' leadership status in Israel, Joshua encouraged him to forbid them from prophesying. But Moses gently corrected him, declaring, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Numbers eleven twenty nine. Joshua and his spiritual counterpart, Caleb, were the two faithful spies who returned from Canaan with a good report. When Moses' death was imminent, he besought the Lord to install a leader over Israel who could function like a shepherd over sheep. And God immediately pointed to Joshua. As God instructed, Moses set Joshua before Eliezer the priest and all the nation and invested as his successor and leader of Israel. Numbers 27, 12 to 23. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, as did the Lord commanded. Deuteronomy 34, 9. The book of Joshua opens with a reminder of the promise God made to Abraham, Unto thy seed I will give this land, Genesis 12, 7. God affirmed to Joshua, quote, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon. That have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Joshua 1.3. Of the seven nations in Canaan, it was God's will that every single person be exterminated. In his final sermon to the nation, Moses reminded Israel, For the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before you. Deuteronomy 9.4. And thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Deuteronomy 7.2 The book of Judges is a commentary on Israel's failure to obey this demand of God and the disastrous consequences that ensued. 
three times God yoked strength and courage to Joshua's submission to his law given through Moses as an added incentive and exhortation and due to the efficacy in eight to questions. God raised the first of two to Joshua. Have not I commanded thee? Joshua 1 9. God's questions are brief, potent, and to the point. They address the mind with childlike simplicity. They leave no room for argument. On occasions when statements may lay flat on the mind, questions stir up the mind and invoke attention. They convert a crowd into individuals. They demand reflection and a response. They are always in man's best interest. Does a mere man in a legitimate position of authority not have the right to demand compliance with a given decree? Is an employee who is rational in his thinking and needs his job going to view lightly a requirement from his employer? Just five simple words in God's question. And yet they are as broad as the whole of the Bible. The Bible is saturated with the commandments of God. Have not I commanded thee? Embraces every area of life. Every commandment of God is a manifestation of the love of God. It is God's heart, full of love, tugging at man's heart to think right so that he can do right and enjoy the blessings associated with righteous living for both time and eternity. Since man's incapable of properly directing his own life, Jeremiah 10, 23, and possesses a heart that is prone to wickedness, Jeremiah 79, because of the powerful magnet of the flesh, he needs God's objective revelation to instruct him as to what he should and should not do. God's commandments are directive, and protective. His thou shalt's are directive, and his thou shalt not's are protective. Comprised of 176 verses, Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is a monument to the inexpressible wonder and human need of the commandments and laws of God. Testimonies, ways, Precepts, statutes, judgments, word, and ordinances join commandments and laws in a sublime portrayal of God's mind bountifully supplying every need of the human family. In the 23 verses or occurrences of just the word commandments expressed his sentiments, the psalmist did, regarding them in terms like respect, verse 6, delight, 
verse 47. Learn, verse 73. Faithful, verse 86. Source of wisdom. These are the commandments of God and what they do for man. Verse 98. Keep, verse 115. Love, verse 127. Longed for, verse 131. Truth, verse 151. Righteousness, every commandment of God is righteous and provokes righteousness. Verse 172. And do not forget the last verse in the psalm. Pleasing God demands faith, Hebrews 11, 6, which is based on the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, which contains laws, commandments, and statutes from God for faith to obey. The faith of the Bible is a faith that obeys God. Paul spoke of the work of faith, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and the obedience of faith, Romans 16, 26. Claiming faith without submitting to the commandments of God nullifies the claim. Biblical faith eagerly embraces the precepts of God's word because that is its nature. It can no more act in the absence of an ordinance from God than a man can see without eyes. One just as well entreat the sun to rule over the night or the moon to regulate the day as to petition faith to express itself without a law or a commandment from God. The psalmist was expressing the spirit of faith when he said, The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Psalms 119.72 And again, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalms 119.97 Have not I commanded thee is the basis of faith. Jesus said that loving God with the whole of one's being is the first and great commandment. Matthew 22, 38. Human voices clamor with assertions of love for God. Of what value are these claims void of proof? Liberalism professes love for God while disdaining the commandments of God. Liberalism views emphasis on commandments as legalism. And an enemy of the grace of God. Liberalism is so lacking in spiritual perception that it is unable to discern that loving God itself is a commandment. It is not possible to love God without loving the commandments of God and submitting to them in the obedience of faith. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And John affirmed, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, 1 John 5, 3. Faith in God and love for God walk in the same shoes and breathe the same air. Sever them from the commandments of God and both die. Paul pointed to the only thing that avails in Christ when he said, Faith which worketh by love. Galatians 5, 6. Faith and love listen to the commandments of God and love incites faith to obey God. Have not I commanded thee is the basis of both faith and love. Inherent in liberalism is such a loathing for law that it is incapable of reflecting upon anything inconsistent with itself. 
Liberalism does not think, it feels. It is emotion circumventing the mind. Rational thinking is liberalism's worst enemy. Liberalism contempt, contempt for law is so great that it has perverted grace in an attempt to nullify it. It has arrayed the grace of God against the law of God as though they were enemies. Liberalism is unable to perceive that both have the same source. It is the grace of God. It is the law of God. Paul asserted the teaching nature of the grace of God in Titus 2, 11 and 12. He specified five commandments, two negative and three positive, that are so broad as to function as foundation to the whole of the Bible. The basic intent of every divine, thou shalt and thou shalt not, is to urge man to refrain from sin and live a righteous life. This is the very point of these five great precepts as taught by the grace of God. Any effort to separate the grace of God from the law of God is pure folly. Have not I commanded thee is the proclamation of the grace of God. A preacher whose heart has been captivated by the spirit of liberalism gazed mentally upon the use of a mechanical instrument in Christian worship and declared it's no big deal. Four simple words, and yet their sound and pompous spirit is like an earthquake upon spiritual mind. Framed and molded by God's self. There is no biblical truth that cannot be invalidated by the implementation of these four words in eight to the wicked spirit of liberalism. Consistency of application of this evil spirit would annul the whole of the Bible and reinstate the self-willed disposition when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. If you're having difficulty seeing the truths of what have just been uttered relative to the obnoxious, wicked, evil spirit of liberalism, just look at the political scene embraced by one entire political party in America. Listen to their foolish, insane words that defy common sense articulation. There are not enough words in Webster's Dictionary to do justice in describing this wicked spirit embraced by an entire party, political party in America. That's the consummation. Not quite, but it's getting close to it. The consummation of where the wicked spirit of liberalism leads. 
It takes mammoth pride to consider an unauthorized act of worship as no big deal. If God viewed Moses and Aaron's action of striking instead of speaking to the rock as an expression of unbelief, Numbers 20:12, and rebellion, Numbers 27:14, what must be his attitude toward one who would presumptuously dismiss a piece of machinery in worship void of a commandment from God as no big deal? Cain entered God's presence with self-serving worship, and God rejected both him and his worship. Genesis 4, 1 to 7. Nadab and Abihu approached God with an unauthorized source of fire for their incense, and God slew them. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Jeroboam ravaged God's pattern of worship for Israel, and God pronounced a severe judgment upon him and his house, 1 Kings 14, 5 to 16, and later he killed him. 1 Chronicles 13, 20. Jesus described worship based on human devising instead of God's will as vain. Matthew 15, 9. Have not I commanded thee is the foundation of all acceptable worship. The no big deal disposition of heart that promotes human tampering with things divine repeals faith, cancels love, and abrogates the teaching of the grace of God. Joshua commissioned two men to survey Jericho in preparation for taking the city. Rahab hid the spies, confessed her faith in God, made arrangements with the two men for the preservation of her life and the lives of her family unit. God validated Joshua as Moses' successor with a mighty sign of confirmation. In kinship with his great wonder at the Red Sea, God divided the waters of the Jordan River enabling Israel to cross over into Canaan on dry land. As God's miraculous works in Egypt were a declaration of His name throughout all the earth, Exodus 9, 16, even so was His omnipotent wonder at the Jordan River a proclamation, quote, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. Joshua 4, 24. Having arrived in Canaan, the men who were born during the wilderness wandering were circumcised. Israel observed the Passover. They ate the corn of Canaan, and the next day the manna ceased falling from heaven. Speaking of Canaan, God said to Abraham, Under thy seed will I give this land, Genesis 12, 7. The events of Joshua should have commenced with Numbers 13, 40 years earlier. But the fulfillment of God's promise was delayed because of Israel's unbelief. Many centuries later, the time had finally arrived for Moses to initiate their conquering of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua said, his, or God said, his angel, capital A, his angel, would lead Israel into Canaan and accompany them in his judgment against the nations that inhabited the land, Exodus 23, 20 to 23. This angel was the eternal word of John 1, 1 that appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, 1 to 6, the one whom Isaiah saw in the temple, Isaiah 6, and John 12, 37 to 41, the pre-incarnate Christ who followed Israel and supplied their needs, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Prior to his defeat of Jericho, he appeared to Joshua 
with a sword in his hand, identified himself as the captain of the angelic host before whom Joshua prostrated himself in worship. And he said to Moses, as he said to Moses at the burning bush, he commanded Joshua to remove his shoes from off his feet because he was standing on holy ground. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. What an incredible source of encouragement it was for Joshua to behold God with his own sword leading the angelic host into battle against the heathen nations of Canaan. Jericho was the first city to be conquered in Canaan, and as it was initiated with verifying miraculous power. It was a gift of God with no basis for human merit. God said, I have given unto thee the city of Jericho, and the king, and the mighty men of valor. Joshua 6, 2. Thirteen marches around the city by the men of war, the sound of a trumpet and shout of the people and the collapsing of the walls was a validating sign that in conquering Canaan, Israel would only be a pawn in the righteous judgment of God. God's appearance, this truth depicting as the captain of this angelic host, is a picture of that. That Israel was just going to be a pawn in the hand of God. This was God's war, not Israel's. This was God's judgment, not Israel's. And therefore God, with this sword in his hand, not Israel's hand, leading as captain, commander-in-chief of the angelic host of heaven against these heathen nations is an illustration, a depiction of that truth. In addition to that, you have the hailstones that God rained down from heaven in the battle against the Amorites that killed more soldiers than did Israel with the sword. Joshua 10, 11, and the extension of a day that allowed time for Israel to complete their victory over the enemy, Joshua 10, 12-13. This truth that this was God's war, not Israel's, God's righteous war, not Israel's, with a sword in God's hand, not Israel's hand, and these hailstones falling, and this extension of the day is also reinforced twice as inspiration declares the Lord Fall for Israel. Joshua 10, 14, and 42. Prior to the conflict with Jericho, God threatened Israel with a curse upon the nation if any man took any gold, silver, or vessels of brass or iron for his own use. Achan's violation of God's commandment activated the curse, and 36 men in Israel died in the ensuing battle with Ai. In view of the clarity of God's warning regarding the curse upon the nation, Joshua and the elders should have assembled the people and asserted, there is sin in the camp. They should have referred to God's warning and the clarity of it in this curse. Any man partake of any of these items, the curse is going to be upon the nation. There is sin in the camp. Someone has stolen some of these items. 
that were sanctified for the treasury of the Lord, and we have just paid the price for it. That's what they should have done, and that's what they should have said. Instead, they prostrated themselves before the Ark of the Covenant. And Joshua commenced to pray as though the problem was with God and not Israel. He even used some of the very language that the first generation used to blame God for liberating them from Egypt so he could kill them in the wilderness. Joshua just went back and borrowed some of that ugly accusatory language that that first generation of unbelievers and ingrates used in blaming God for what had just happened. He said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and stayed on the other side of the Jordan. That is ugly talk. But that's the very words of Joshua 7, verse 7, out of the mouth of Joshua, out of his own heart, and from the hearts, no doubt shared, by these elders who should have known better in Israel. He continued with this prayer of unbelief, accusation, and blame by presenting the dilemma in which God had placed him. Oh God, what shall I say? When Israel turneth their backs before their enemies. Joshua 7, 8. He viewed the consequences of God's actions as resulting in Israel's destruction by the Canaanites and harm being done to his own great name among the pagan nations. Joshua 7, 9. God responded to Joshua's sinful, accusatory diatribe with a firm, Get thee up! Followed by his second question. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Joshua 17. He then pointed to the real source of the problem in Israel's sin and warned, Neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed from among yourselves. Joshua 7 12. God's command and question is a stern rebuke in case in love grace, and forbearance. This is another classic example of a great man of faith and devotion to God who momentarily lost control of his spiritual senses, neglected to think right about God, sinned grievously in his heart, and displayed it with his lips. It is set in contrast to the tenderness of God, 
who never ceases to belong though to view those who belong to him with deep and abundant affection, ever in remembrance that they are weak, feeble, and frail, and live their lives with the supplication of David embedded in their hearts. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Psalm 51. When adversity lays hold upon us, and we find ourselves on our face before God. May we never look upward toward God with a spirit of blame, but inward with contriteness of spirit, imploring God for mercy, aid, and comfort. Brothers and sisters, we're all just as weak and frail and feeble as we can be. At our very best, we come a million miles short of what we are. In the course of this brief sojourn, we never arrive at the point of consummation where we can say, I finally reached it. Affected my life. To our last breath, we're going to need to bow before God with a broken, contrite spirit and entreat God with the whole of our being. Be merciful unto me, O God, sinner. Luke 18, 15. Hearing words like we heard in a previous lesson that Moses uttered ugly, accusatory words of unbelief. And yet he was the meekest man in all the earth. One of God's greatest servants. One likened to Christ. And then from Joshua, who was one of the best men that's ever lived. Great in his faith and devotion to God. Yet hearing him water, utter these ugly, accusatory words. Ought to keep us in memory of that passage we've often reflected upon. That him that thinketh he stand to take heed lest fall. And to see, in contrast, the love of God that dealt with most of, both of these servants in such a merciful, kind, tender, loving He could have done to both of them and been justified in doing what he did to Nadab and Abihu. But he knew they were flesh. He knew in their heart they loved him and were devoted to him. And they knew that this angry outburst was a brief, transient 
quickly passing sentiment coming out of two beings who were frustrated beyond belief, but whose words could never be justified. And dealt with them because of the spirit of that was uttered by David was embedded in their own heart such a tender way. Oh, what lessons come from questions from God. Brief, simple, yet probing the heart to its very depths. If you're present, never obey the gospel. I encourage you by faith, repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. You've done that, send in some public way, you need the prayers of the church. We hope you'll come while we stand and sing. message from God's Word, how God is faithful and always willing to 
willing to help us and take us back. Thank you again, Frank. Uh, we want to thank everyone for being here this morning. Uh, I want to remind everyone about our luncheon this afternoon. Uh, please stick around uh, immediately after services for that. If you are visiting, you're our honored guest. Please stay around for us to meet you and, and for you to eat with us. If you would, let's all now turn to number 194. Be our closing song, and then we'll be led in prayer. 194, we'll sing the first verse of uh, Sweet By and By. There's a land that's fair and day, and by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful. Shall meet on that beautiful. 